Lord Jesus, I thank you for each and every soul in this room this morning, Lord. I pray for each and every life, for each and every story, Lord. And I pray as we open the scriptures this morning, Lord, that you would open them up to us, that you would help us understand them more, you would open up our hearts, you'd open up our minds, Lord, and you'd let us really walk out of here today closer to you. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen. All right, I'm excited to talk about this. Before I begin, uh, message notes. If you did not get message notes, you can raise your hand. They're a great way to follow along. And so uh, the ushers have those. You can just raise your hand and they'll get you message notes. But uh, as I begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. And I'm gonna, here's what I ask. I ask for you to answer it honestly. Like really take a moment, think about it, and answer it honestly. And if you do that, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to do a poll or anything else like that. But I do want you to really think about this and ponder this question. And my question for you is this. When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you shared the gospel story, what you believe about Jesus with someone else? How long has it been? Was it this week? Was it this month? Was it this year? That's the same as this month. (laughs) (laughs) Mind blown. (laughs) Has it been last year, three years, four years, five years? Have you shared your faith with any in the last five years? This decade? Ever? Have you ever shared your faith with someone else? What does the scripture say about sharing our faith? You know, it's so important that this is the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples. In each of the gospel accounts, there's kind of a different account of this, but I imagine kind of all the disciples on this hillside and Jesus is there and they're having these like, awkward bro hugs, and they're kind of like, all right, we'll see you, Jesus, and they're probably not quite sure where he's going, but it's kind of like when someone's at your house party, and they're standing at your door, and they're like, okay, I can clearly tell this guy's about to leave, and so everything's wrapping up, and Jesus has this moment of like, okay, we've, I've told you a lot of stuff, but this is the thing that I want you to remember. It reminds me of like when my parents dropped me off from college, and my mom's like, okay, I've been parenting you for 18 years, and like, I got to tell you one last thing, so my mom told me, get good grades, and marry a good girl. That was kind of the, like, <laughs> that was my mom's, like, parting advice. And so, like, we, this is Jesus is like, okay, I'm sending you off to college now. You've been with me. You've been following me, but you're going to go, and this is what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to remember. And so there's a few different accounts of this in different gospels. And so Mark, which is the shortest of the gospels, says this. Mark 16 says, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Matthew 28 says it like this. This is kind of the Great Commission is what this passage is called. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority, I want you to remember that, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus says, all that I've been teaching you for the last three years, all those lessons, the good Samaritan, everything, this is what we're talking about here. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then after the gospels, Acts, actually, the book of Acts begins by retelling this story as well. And Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says in Acts 1 verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses you've ever heard that word witness, this is where we get it from. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And so there are all these different accounts. There's a clear, this is what you're supposed to do. One chapel, this is what we're supposed to do. And so it's clear that Jesus is saying this, but when I asked you, okay, how many of you have done this? I wonder if we raised hands, how many have shared in the last year? I wonder honestly how many hands would go up. And so why? Where's the disconnect? Where's the disconnect between something Jesus really told us to do and the reality of what we have to do? There's been a lot of surveys, a lot of studies done about the reasons we don't share. And I want to give you the top three reasons. Top three reasons we don't share our faith. Reason number one, we're afraid to offend someone. We're afraid to offend. And it's easy to offend someone in 2018. <laughs> like, whew, at least he knows. At least he gets it. Rob, you get it. No, we live in this fragmented society. We've been torn. We've been broken. Our sin has broken us. And so we're, things are torn, we're, we're, we're fighting, we're com- more combative than I can ever remember in my lifetime. And so we live, their Twitter wars are a real thing. Families end, like relationships and family end over a post in Facebook. It's the reality. And so we're afraid, like in this, cu- and there's culture in this way of like, how do I even talk about Jesus anymore? I say the name Jesus, then it's offensive. How do I even do it? So we're afraid to offend. A little more personally, reason number two, we don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be embarrassed. Sharing might more than offend someone. It might cost us something. It might cost us a friendship, a neighbor, a networking opportunity. And I don't say these things to shame you or make you feel guilty. I say them to acknowledge them. Like, hey, let's be honest. Part of the reason we don't share is because we don't want to be embarrassed ourselves. I kind of learned this lesson for the first time when I was in junior high, I was seventh grade. I was like the skinny Star Trek kid, like not the Adonis that you see before you this morning. <laughs> and you're like, what, Rob? Yeah, that was me. And so it was seventh grade, my youth pastor, we had like a competition in our youth group of like who could share Jesus with the most people. And so I was like, okay, share Jesus, got it. And so I had my Bible, took my Bible to school. And I remember like talking to this kid and I was like, do you believe in Jesus? And he's like, nope. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to say. This is awkward. And so I was like, I got all red and blotchy. And I was like, how do you do this? How do you actually share Jesus? I was embarrassed. I felt like a fool. I don't want my friends to not like me. And I think there's a little junior higher in a lot of us that if we're honest, we're like, okay, I should do this. Ah, I can't. I don't want to be embarrassed. Okay, I should say something. Ah, that's too embarrassing. And kind of piggybacking off that, reason number three we don't share Jesus is because we don't know how to share the message of Jesus. We live, you know, we talk, we've talked about it in church before, but we live in kind of a post-Christian world. When you look at the percentage of people who would call themselves a Christian, that number is changing all the time. And so the way that this is talked about and the narrative is changing so much, we're like, ah, in this divisive, crazy split world, I don't even know how to do it anymore. And so I was thinking about this as preparing this message and looking at all the statistics of why we don't share our faith. We don't do it even though Jesus clearly commanded it. We're like, okay, all those other commands I can do, but this one feels like too much. This one feels like someone else is gonna do it. I'm not gonna be the person who invites someone to church. Someone else will do that because that's just not me. I don't know how. And so, but why? Why do we feel like that? And I think the reason that we feel like this is because of a mentality that we have that is a sales mentality. We have a really bad sales mentality. I've done sales before. Who's done sales before in their life? 
Okay, good, then you're gonna get this. A lot of you have done sales, and there's kind of a good way to do sales, and then there's like a little bit of a dated way to do sales that is not a good way. Sales are necessary, they're part of life, but there's kind of a bad way to do sales, that we, and we treat the gospel like this. And so here's kind of the bad sales approach to the gospel. Number one, sales care primarily about quotas. Sales care about quotas. They don't really care about like the person standing in front of you. Sales are just about quotas and numbers. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to share with this person. If they don't like it, I'm going to go to the next person. I'm going to go to the next person. I just got to get my quotas. So if my quota is one or five or 15 or 20, I'm just going to go and hit that quota. And if you've ever been in a high pressure sales environment, you know that 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 can be a reality of like, okay, I just got to burn through leads until I get my quotas. My first sales job ever was uh, in a company called MCI. And so if you go back to the late 90s, there were three kind of major phone companies. There was AT&T, there was Sprint, and there was MCI. MCI doesn't exist anymore, and that's probably a lot because of me. <laughs> but I was, I was, I was like an 18-year-old kind of salesman, and so I got my first sales job. So they sent us through a week of like training of like, hey, this is how you do sales. And it was kind of a lot about what I'm about to talk about of like, this is what sales are, and they're about quotas, and they're about numbers. And so I was like, okay, I got to go. And so I remember you go through a week of training, and then they put a headset on you just like this, and I'm sitting in front of a computer screen, and all of a sudden it's there, and it's like, all right, this is Dave in Iowa. And he's like, hello? And you're like, blotchy and you're like oh man i'm on i got a sale and so i was like hey who's your long distance provider and he's like do you know what we're doing right now and i was like you're on the phone and he's like no sir we are having dinner uh can i call you during dinner and i was like no and so he's like okay fine and then he hung up the phone and i was like all discouraged i was like i don't know how to do this and so finally I went and I was like, there's got to be a way to like crack the code. So I went and I failed a bunch and failed a bunch. And then finally there was this lady called Nancy and it was Nancy in Des Moines and she was there. And so she picked up the phone. She's like, hello. And I'm like, hey, this is Rob from MCI. And she's like, do you know what you're doing right now? And I was like, having dinner. And she's like, yes, we're having dinner. And I was like, okay. And she's like, can I call you at home when you're having dinner? And I said, you know what? Yes, you can. Do you have a pen? And she's like, yeah. I was like, write down my number, 719-598-8078. And I was like, but if you make that call, it's going to be more expensive if you're long distance. So I can save your money on, I can save you money on pestering me. <laughs> and I sold her. <laughs> I got that sale. And so I learned I was really good at sales. I was actually like one of the top salesmen and I got really good at it and I was making sales and it was happening. But honestly, I went home from work every night and I felt army. I felt wrong because I didn't really care about the person. I didn't care about Nancy. All I cared about was what Nancy could do for me and my bottom line. And that's how I looked at it. And if we approach people with the gospel like that, it will fail. It will not work. It is not what God's called us to. Along with that, number two, sales feel disingenuous. We feel like we're lying a little bit, or at least we're manipulating, we're distorting the truth. It's kind of like that used car salesman who's like, hey, does this car have a problem? And he's like, don't all cars have problems? And you're like, like no, just answer the question. I want to know what's the history here. And it's kind of like that, that smarmy sort of thing where we feel like we got to manipulate and twist the truth. And thing number three about like of a bad sales mentality is sales put us into a warlike mentality. It's kind of like we're at the mall kiosk and we're selling Jesus. 
And we're like, hey, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And people are just walking by. Have you ever kind of walked by that person in the mall kiosk and they're looking right at you and you're like, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look. <laughs> and like, sir, here's this deodorant. And you're like, don't look, don't. You're just like, stay away, stay away. And that's sometimes like we feel like that, but then when we feel like, oh, I'm the person at the mall kiosk with Jesus trying to like get people to listen and they won't listen, they're rejecting me. And it's just like these many micro rejections over and over again. And then eventually we're like, you know what? This doesn't work. The Great Commission does no longer works. What Jesus said 2,000 years ago is wrong. It's a lie in 2018. And that's actually what we think in our hearts. That's actually what some of you have thought. That's what some of you believe. That's what I've believed at times. And so well, how do we do this? How do we go, if this is the greatest story ever told, if this is, this is this thing that's transformed my life, I've been radically changed by this, but I don't know how to share it. What's the paradigm shift that we have to go to? And I think the big paradigm shift that we have to get one chapel is we have to go from a sales mentality to a story mentality. And scripture tells us this. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason that you have hope. But do this with gentleness and respect. Colossians 4, 2, 6 says this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ on which account of which I am in prison. So that's a big idea. He's actually in prison. So he's like, I'm practicing what I preached. I shared the gospel and it got me in prison. But I love this second part. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Wisdom. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. See, when we have a bad sales mentality, it's like a one-size-fits-all template. This is how I share the gospel with everyone. This is exactly how it is. But it is like, hey, there's a different way to answer each person. There's a different context, a different level of your relationship, a different part of the journey. And so I think those are really important, big ideas of why we're not supposed to just sail. We're actually supposed to tell our story. And here's why sharing your story is so much better than trying to sell. Reason number one, stories are honest. Stories are honest. They're like, hey, I don't know about you. I don't know what you, you believe, but let me tell you this story. I love the blind man in the Gospel of John who says, why did this happen to you? What do you know? And he's like, listen, I don't know how all this works, but here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. That doesn't put you in the form to argue. That puts you in the form of like, wow, you were blind and now you see. And if you've really had an encounter with Jesus, somewhere along the way, your life has been transformed. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you figured it all out, but you figured out, wow, there is a grace and a love and a hope. And when I sing these worship songs on Sunday mornings, I sing them because something has happened to me and I remember that. And so our story is honest and it just says, hey, I can't explain it. I'm not putting this on you, but let me tell you what happened with me. Reason number two is this, stories are engaging. Stories are engaging. Stories make us want to lean in. They take you on a ride. We live in a time in history where people love stories. We binge stories, more stories. There are more, I, th- I just read a statistic that in 2017, 600 TV shows, 600 new pilot TV show series were made. Eight years earlier, that number was 200. So think about how many more TV shows we're making because we have it on our apps, we're streaming it, we're binging it, we're like, more, 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 we want more stories. There's something about us that craves these kind of stories. 
And the reason why is because they're engaging. They take us on a ride. We love stories. And idea number three about stories that are different than sales. Stories make you want to know more. Stories, at the end of a sale, it's like, okay, that's my presentation, yes or no. Stories leave room for the other person to ask questions and say, wait, why is that? How is that? They make you want to know more versus making someone else on the defensive. And so I want to kind of show you this morning how stories work, like unpack them a little bit. And to do that, I want to tell a story that happened to me and then unpack this story. And if you know me, perspective is a big, big deal. I think it's so important. And this is a story for me about a changed perspective. I told this story actually my first Sunday at One Chapel two and a half years ago. And I told this story because it was part of my perspective that changed that kind of called me into ministry. And so this story actually happens uh, on a trip. My family was planning a trip to Disneyland. So we'd been saving for it for like a whole year. The kids had been doing chores. We put marbles in jars of a way to let kids know like how much they were earning. And we were like, okay, we're going to have this fl- plan a year from now. We're going to go to Disneyland with our kids. So we scrimped and we scrimped and we saved. And Sarah and I saved money and we had this little pot of money with And we're like, okay, this is where we're going to go and we're going to take it to Disneyland. So we... We have three kids at the time, so we loaded them all up in the minivan, and we're like, all right, we're going to make this 16-hour trip to uh, Utah. And who's ever done, like, a long road trip with kids under two? Who's ever done that? Yeah, and so, yeah, everyone's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and so that was me. It was this long road trip. So my strategy for that is I wake up at 3 a.m., I wake up at 3 a.m. and I load the kids in the car because I'm like, man, I want as much sleep time as possible. I used to never wake up early, but now I'm like, I'm going to get up really early for this trip. So I did it. We were driving to California, loaded all the kids in the car, woke up at 3 a.m., and the trip is going great. It is going awesome. And we're kind of in that part of Utah where, like, there's no one there. Like, if aliens were ever going to land, they could land in this part of Utah and leave, and no one would know it because it's that sort of, like, desolate. And so we're just in that part of Utah where it's just no man's land, kind of desert stretching in every direction, barely any cell service. So we go there, and then all of a sudden, I remember driving down the road, kind of looking at the odometer, and it was there, and it was like, or the speedometer, and the speedometer was there, and it was like, and it went back up, and I was like, that's weird. And then went again and back up, and I was like, oh man, something's happening. And then all of a sudden, all the lights in the car started to flicker, the radio goes out, the air conditioner goes out, and then about 30 seconds later, our car goes, and like kind of like comes to this really difficult halt. And all the sounds that I heard, I was like, oh man, that's thousands of dollars. <laughs> there goes our Disneyland trip. And so I get out of the car and I look at it. My kids are crying. My wife is crying. She's like, there's no way Rob's going to know how to fix this. <laughs> and it's like, everyone's crying. I'm freaked out. I opened the hood like I actually knew what was going on underneath there. I'm like, I'm like hmm. <laughs> I had no idea. I was like, all the parts are still there. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a flux capacitor over there. I was like, <laughs> I, was like I don't know. I don't know what this is. So we go, we get on the phone, we call our insurance, and then they give us this local tow company. So we go, we're just out in the middle of nowhere. And then they're like, okay, that's going to be an hour and a half until the tow truck driver gets there. And we're like, oh, an hour and a half. It's like creeping up to 100 degrees in Utah in July. And it was brutal. And so everyone's super hot. Finally, the tow truck driver pulls up. And this is like the Cars-looking tow truck from the movie Cars. It's like rusty, and there's no logo on it at all, and there's this dude with like taped-up glasses and kind of oil slicked over here, and he just kind of looks at me, and he's like, your car broke, huh? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, uh, he's like, I can take you guys into town, but I can't fit all of you. I can only fit three of you. And there were five of us there, and so we're like, 
wait, what? And so he's like, why don't I take your wife and kids and then you stay here with the car? <laughs> and I was like, it was one of the biggest, I'm telling you, it's one of the biggest fork in the road moments, like one of those decisions where I was like, I don't know which way to go. And I played out all the scenario. I was like, no, I should go with the tow truck driver. And then I'm like, but leave my wife and baby daughter on the side of the road all by herself? Or do I send them and then, uh, and then I'm there? And so I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So I go, uh, finally, I was like, okay, Sarah, you need to go into town with them and I'll just wait here. And so she's like, all right. And I'll never forget this moment. I'll never forget. She was like seven months pregnant, kind of walking into the car with holding the little kid's hands. And then she loads them in the tow truck and she kind of looks back at me like, <laughs> and she's like, are you sure this is a good idea? And then she shuts the door and the tow truck drives away. And as soon as it drove away, I was like, oh man, this is a bad idea. This is a bad plan. What did I do? And so I got nervous. And so I, I texted her, hey, are you okay? And then I got no response back. And then I called once, twice, and then my phone went dead. And I looked and it was all out of battery. And my car battery was dead. I had no way to charge it. And I'm just sitting there on the side of the road like I don't know what to do. My hood's still up. About 15 minutes later, a state trooper pulls up. And he's like, hey, is your car broken down? I was like, yeah. And he's like, uh, well, um, do you have help coming or whatever else? I was like, yeah, the tow truck driver already came. And he's like, the tow truck driver already came? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, well, I sent my wife and kids with him. And he's like, you sent your wife and kids with a tow truck driver? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, all right. And then he walks off and then he gets his car and it drives away. And I was like, why did he say that? I was so freaked out. And so then the tow truck driver comes back. And, I like, and I'm like, hey, are my wife and kids okay? And he's like, yeah. And I'm, I was like, I didn't know how to say it. I was like, you're not like a serial killer or anything, are you? Like, I don't know how, I didn't, I didn't want to hurt his feelings, so I didn't ask that. <laughs> so then we go, and I'm just in the car, and I'm driving with him now, and then he's like, okay. So I'm like, hey, where are we going? And I was like, there was some place like Auto Tech or some sort of shop like that that we were supposed to go to. And I was like, so did you drop him off at Auto Tech? And he's like, no, I didn't do that. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean you didn't do that? He's like, I went over to Bernie's. And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, I talked to Autotech. It's like a two-day wait for you to see your car. Bernie's can get you in right away today. And I was like, oh, this is how it happens. They pr this guy preys upon poor guys like me who don't know how to fix their car and takes them to his buddy and charges three times his amount, and I know what's going to happen here. And so we go. We finally got to Bernie's, and it wasn't really a shop. It was just this kind of house, and some people were there, like playing cornhole and there was like <laughs> some alcohol on the front lawn and I was like huh but I was like well my wife and kids were there and so I saw them and we all hugged each other they're alive and we're all crying the receptionist is crying she's so moved at the scene and so I was like okay we're at least safe and so we go and we just wait for them to fix the car about two hours later he goes and he comes and he's like okay your car's all fixed and I was waiting for the other shoe to drop I was like all right how many zeros are going to be in front of the price that he quotes me and I was like all right how much is it? And he's like, well, to fix it, it costs $43. And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, you, uh, your wife told us the story and you were on your way to Disney and we just want to really bless you guys. So we, uh, we just, we fixed it and it's on us. Just a little bit for a part we needed. And I was like, I mean, I was like so moved by it. I, went, I ended up like writing to him like, thank you. That was so amazing. You saved our trip to Disneyland. And that story for me completely changed my perspective. And what I realized was actually the church is the tow truck driver in the story. Christians are the tow truck driver. 
We're the people who, as soon as we say something, there's all this sort of suspicion, there's all this doubt. And I had doubts about this guy, not because of the sins he had committed, but because I'd heard the, you know, reputation of like the small town auto shop, and I'd heard reputations. Those reputations were totally undeserved by him, but I put my own biases on him. Do you get that? And so I think that's what happens to us as Christians is our own bias gets put, or people's own bias get put on us and we get accused of things that we didn't do. And so how do we overcome that bias? How do we overcome that kind of distance and wall? It's by living the gospel. It's by living so generously. And it's by that tow truck driver did everything he could to take care of me and take care of my family, to serve us. And then finally after he did that, I was like, oh wow, I can believe I can trust this guy. And so I think, that's how, I think that's how it works, and that's how it changes. And stories are such a big part of changing perspective. So I want to kind of unpack how to tell your story with a few simple steps. I'm going to start with the screenwriter's definition of story. When a writer's writing a story, they look at it like this. A flawed character overcomes seemingly insurmountable obstacles in the pursuit of a goal. Every movie, every story, everything you've ever watched, a flawed character overcomes seemingly insurmountable obstacles in pursuit of the goal. And I think the word flawed is really important there because when, when we tell our own stories and we have flaws, when we're not perfect, when we're not like, oh, I've got this all figured out, this is who I am, I've learned it all, I know, but like, no, I'm kind of broken, I'm flawed, here's what happened to me, and we approach it like that, it makes people so much more empathetic. So how do you tell your story? How do stories work? Your story has three big parts. If, if it's a story worth telling, it has three big parts. And if you don't have all these characteristics in your story, you don't really have a story. You more have like an update of something that happened to you or whatever else, but it's not really an actual story. These are the three markers where you know you have a story worth telling. Marker number one is this. And this is all from Blake Snyder, who wrote a book called Scave the Cat. And so this is a screenwriting book. There's actually 15 steps. But I'm going to give you the big three, because I think for us laymen, this is the big idea of telling our story. Step number one is the catalyst. The catalyst, he calls it. It's Frodo leaving Mordor. It's Marty going back in time. It's Luke's parents dying. For you, it may be the time you were fired. It might be a divorce. It might be the time that you flew overseas to China and said, hey, I'm going to live here for the next year. But here's the big idea about the catalyst. The catalyst is an event where things are broken or things are changed and that you can't turn back. When Marty's stuck back in time, he can't go back. He has to fix this problem. When Rob is stuck on the side of the road, it's like, okay, this is a problem and I can't just turn around and go home now. This is a problem that's broken and has to be fixed. And so that's the catalyst. That's the big idea. What is it in the gospel? In the gospel, it starts really early on in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And it was like, here's paradise. You get to live here forever, happily ever after the end. And they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they eat from that fruit of that tree, all of a sudden, everything's changed. They're kicked out and there's this split between man and God. And it's this thing that's broken. It's like, you can't turn back. You can't just go back to the garden. Something has to be fixed. And so this is the catalyst. And so you got to think about, I want you to think about a story in your life of what happened and what was that catalyst where it's like, okay, this happened to me and I couldn't turn back. So then some other events happen, but then the kind of big part of your story, and I think we miss this so much as Christians, is point two in your story, which is the dark night of the soul, Blake Snyder calls it. The dark night of the soul. In movies, this is when a mentor dies. It's when Obi-Wan Kenobi dies in Star Wars, when Gandalf dies in Lord of the Rings. Spoilers, sorry. Something goes really wrong. Things go from bad to worse. This is, in the gospel story, this is the cross. 
The cross is there, and the cross isn't, you know, it's this instrument and moment of hope that we have. But for Jesus in that moment, in that story, for those disciples, it was like everything we worked for, everything we worked so hard for is dying. Jesus is dying there. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For him, that is the dark night of the soul. That is the absolute rock bottom. For me in my story, it was like the phone goes dead and my wife is gone. The police officer said, you made a mistake and leaves me. And it was just this, I thought of, I'm telling you, I made jokes about that story, but I'm telling you in that moment, the absolute darkest, worst thoughts came into my head. And for you, if you've been in one of these stories, it's where things were so dark, you don't know if you've ever seen the light again. Some of you right now are sitting in church this morning somehow, but you feel like I'm in the dark night of the soul. Where's the hope? But this is why I love the gospel so much. It's because the gospel has this third point, which is this, the transformation. There's kind of that flawed character, that thing that's broken in the beginning of the story, and at the, by the end of the story, something has been transformed. How I looked at money, how I looked at vacation, and really, like, Ross tells me a lot, like, you have this mercy gift where you just have mercy for people, but part of it is, like, I felt so guilty for looking at that tow dr- truck driver or different people in my life where I was like, oh, I've got them figured all out. This is who they are, but I realized, man, God, forgive me. I've looked at people the wrong way. I need to be more empathetic and understand who they are and where they've come from, and it changed my paradigm. And so for me, that transformed my life and my heart. And so if it doesn't have the transformation, like that's what you're looking for. And that's where you got to go and turn to Jesus and find hope of like, how do I find that transformation? And so again, another big idea with each one of these is like, these are things that we live our life in a way. We live it so um, with love for Jesus that we're not just preaching at people, but in each of these verses that I talked about before, I want to read them one more time. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Give the reason of hope that you have. So it means you're living your life. We're talking about evangelism in a way, but the other 51 weeks of the year, we're talking about live your life with purpose, live it with hope, live it differently so people notice you, so they ask, why are you like that? Why do you have that hope? Why do you seem okay even when the rest of us don't? And you do that with gentleness and respect. And then in Colossians, again, it says um, that God may open us a door to the world. Sometimes what we do is we try to kick down our own doors, okay, this, whatever else, but what we should be doing is like, all right, I have this story, I have what's happened, and so I'm gonna put myself in different situations at work, and I'm gonna invest in people's life at school, I'm gonna invest in people's life with my neighbors, and so as I invest, as I pour out, then God, will you open the door? God, Jesus, will you give me the moment where I can look them in the eye and say, let me tell you my story of transformation. And so some of you may still be wondering like, What is my story exactly? How do I do that? I want to end with this. These are a few of the big types of stories that we have, and so it may help you kind of frame your story. Type of story, the first one is the Damascus Road story. Damascus is the story where Saul was on his way to go and actually persecute more Christians. He was there, and he was going to be a murderer. He was going to murder Christians, and in the middle of that road, there's actually a light from heaven that blinded him and blinded him on the way. And it changed him from that moment. God said and said, stop, you're going to change your name to Paul and you're going to be one of the greatest believers who have ever lived. And that Damascus Road experience happened. I also call it the Ebenezer Scrooge moment because Scrooge is there and he's living his life in a certain way and he sees his life and he wakes up Christmas morning and it changes all of a sudden he's get it. 
And for some of you, you have that story where your life was really going in one direction. You were going there and you had this big see the light Damascus Road moment where you're like, I'm doing a 180. I was walking this way, but this thing happened to me and now I'm walking this direction. And so for some of you, that's your story. For others of you, that may not be your story. So here's another type. The next type of story is the call and response. The call and response. This is like a missions trip to live overseas. This is a call to plant a church. This is maybe deciding, okay, I'm going to have a family. This is your dream job. Maybe it's in film or in finance or in the stock market or in government, but you're like, I feel this call there. And sometimes, as Christians, actually, I want to talk about this for a moment, because our call can be sort of tricky. We can think our job is the call, and when we don't feel like, hey, I don't, I'm not in ministry, so how does that work? I am just kind of have a job. What does that mean? I remember uh, where this really clicked for me was I was uh, living in L.A., and I was doing screenwriting, and I was working on an episode of The Office. And so I my, it was my favorite show, and I was like, man, if I could write for The Office, it would be amazing. So I, I wrote what's called a spec script for The Office, which really means it's just like a sample script, like, hey, I hope people see this, and like, maybe something happens with it. So I was working on that script, and I got a chance to share it with Dean Batali, who was the um, showrunner of a show called That 70s Show. So he was there, head writer for it, it was a big deal. So I got to share with him my script of The Office. My script is all about all the office people went and uh, they went on like a low ropes training and so Michael Scott was trying to fix it and tell everyone what to do. It's really funny, I wish it would have got made. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and so it was this really fun episode. So I remember him reading it and as he's re- reading it, like he looks for three check marks a page, which means you need at least three jokes a page. So he's telling me this is a great joke, work on this joke, had such great notes and it was this really cool day that we got to spend with him. And then afterwards, he kind of told us this story of like, hey, I'm the head writer of that 70s show, but uh, somewhere along the way I got saved, and now I'm the worship leader at my church. And so he's like, he's like, a lot of people ask me, like, how are you the worship leader at your church, but you also write this show that's really difficult? And he's like, it's something that I wrestle with every day. It's something I felt guilty with. And he's like, I felt this call to be in Hollywood in this sort of way, but I didn't know how this call actually lined up with my job. And he's like, I've tried to write some of the most meaningful episodes, episodes where people ask something, but I realized like maybe my job wasn't going to be the place that I got to express my faith in a certain way. And I was feeling really frustrated about it, but I kept praying. I kept digging in. I kept saying, God, what do I do? And so he told us like after a few years of just doing this, he, was, he became the head writer, the showrunner it's called. And as he's the head writer, uh, one day at the end of work, everyone goes home. They had a long day of writing and someone's sticking around and he says, hey, I've just noticed, I know you're sort of a believer and a, faith, a person of faith, and I don't have anyone else to ask to, but I have a massive cocaine addiction, and I don't know what to do with it, and I just need someone to help me. I have nowhere else to turn. And so that person turned to Dean. A few weeks later, someone says, hey, you know, my marriage has fallen apart. I've been working so many hours that my wife left me, and now I don't know what to do. Where do I turn? And Dean became that person. And he realized that his mission field wasn't his craft, wasn't these scripts that he's writing. He's like, these 12 writers, if I can go and really help and serve them and be Jesus to them, I'm going to make a huge impact. And it changed his perspective. So I want to encourage you that the call may not actually be what you do, but I promise you this one, Chapel, the call is who you're standing beside at work, at school, those places. That is your call. Thing number three, story type number three is the upside down, the upside down. This is when your life is just kind of flipped backwards. It may be that diagnosis that changed everything. Cancer, a loved one is sick, a child is sick. Maybe your parent got sick. It could be 
the unexpected pregnancy. It could be the loss of a job. There's some sort of really thing where your life was going along and something happened and it was like, hey, everything fell apart because of this moment. That's the upside down. Fourth type is this, the miracle. Some of you have had real miracles happen in your life. It's the healing that happened. The time that you walked away from a car accident. The time that maybe you got a paycheck or you got money and you were desperate and desperately and you're like, I don't know where it came from. And so these are kind of the four archetypes of stories or four of them, there are more, but these are four big ones that I think have happened in our life. And each one of those I gave, there's a God moment in each one of those stories. When we look at our story and kind of think about what's happened, we can see where this is where I was going and it intersected with God. And that's how everything changed. And so it's good for us to reflect on these things and think about where is my story, so how can I tell it? And so this message is called Restart, or this series is called Restart. So how is this about restarting? Well, I think the, w- the way this is about restarting is because it's asking us this year, let's make decisions to live a better story. Let's make decisions to take a risk. I think in our lives, we can be in two places. One, we can be really stagnant, everything's safe, nothing's the same, and we don't really like that. Or the second place is we can be really stretched. We feel like, okay, I'm not up for this, but I'm, I'm being pulled. I'm going somewhere that like, ah, this is stretching, this is difficult. And I think if you want this year to be different, you need to do something that scares you a little bit. You need to take that step where you're like, I don't know if I can do it, but I'm, I'm going to go for it. I remember last December, we were talking as one chapel staff, and we're like, what if we gave a Christmas gift to every single teacher at these elementary schools? And we're like, how can we even afford that? Like, what is that even going to look like? And so we're like, let's just say it. It's scary. What if we fail? What if no one gives? What if we, it doesn't happen? But we said it. We made that kind of risk. And then everyone responded in all three communities. And last week in Kyle, there was a whole row of teachers from Camino Royale who said, wow, one chapel gave me a Christmas gift, so I want to know more. Yeah, that, clap for that. It's good. That's good. That's us. And so that's what we did for, as a church, but we're modeling that to say, hey, we all have to take this. We all have to own that. We all have to do something that's scary. And the question is, how will this be, year be different? Here's what I would love. I would love if this time next year, when I said, hey, who shared their faith with someone last year? Every hand in the room, everyone who was at this service can put your hand up and say, Rob, that's me. I shared with someone. Don't feel salesy. Don't feel the pressure to share with everyone but we are called to share with someone. Start thinking about who that person will be so you can share the hope that's happened to you in a really meaningful way. This can be risky, it can be scary, it takes practice. The story that I told at the beginning of Jesus with all the disciples, after that happened, they didn't go and start preaching the gospel right away. What they actually did was they got into groups. They actually got into one big group and they prayed and they fasted and they shared their story and they processed what happened. So telling your story takes practice, and the best way to start is for us to start telling our story with each other. I want to hear your story. I want to know what's happened. And so if we can go and get really comfortable, go to Catalyst. If you don't know where to tell your story, start in Catalyst. It's a great kind of way for you to live that story and tell that. Get involved in one of the groups at the table. And if you can get comfortable with sharing your story in those environments, then it's going to really matter, and you're going to be so much more comfortable sharing it with someone who doesn't believe, who doesn't know. So that's what we're called to. We're called to take that risk. I want to invite the band to come on up here. And as we end today, I want to invite all of you to communion. And during communion, as you step forward, I want you to think about two things. 
One is kind of start praying about this, think about this, and ask, God, what is my story? What is the story that you want me to share? Or what is that leap of faith that I need to do so I can live that story that's worth sharing? And then the second question I want you to pray about is this. Who am I supposed to share with? Just ask. You may have that person right now, or you may not have any idea. But God wants to be a part of this. So say, Lord, who is that person in my life that you would have me share with? Maybe not right away, but at some point. I was talking to a guy after first service, and he's like, Rob, I got so convicted. I asked the person next to me, do you believe in Jesus? And they're like, I don't know. And so I shared the story of the gospel, and I prayed with them right there and got them saved. And they're, <laughs> they're saved, and they committed their life to Jesus right after service. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so, so maybe your neighbor, I'm not sure. But, you know, <laughs> I just think like that sort of perspective, if we, look, if we open our eyes and look with that perspective, miracles will happen. Salvations will happen. I believe it. So let's pray, and then we're going to open up communion together. We invite everyone to take communion who confesses Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The ushers will come to your left, and then we'll walk all the way through. Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you most of all for the story that you gave us, a story of a Savior who loves us so much that he laid down his life for us. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we process our life and what's happened and how we got here, Lord, that you'd really open up our eyes of like what you've done in our lives and how we can share with others. We don't wanna sell people and we don't wanna be abrasive, Lord, but we do wanna say there is a better way. There is hope and love and life for your life. It has happened to me and it can happen for you too. So give us wisdom. Give us insight of how to do this, Jesus. In your name, amen.